Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. God, we thank you that in this place we can be still and know that you are God. God, in this place, it is all about becoming more like you and less like how we want ourselves to be. God, that in this place, we submit our mind, our will, our emotions, our plans. God, no matter our history or background, no matter our season, whether that's frustration of unmet expectation or decisions or life that has dealt us a tougher hand that we thought we would walk through, God, today, we believe in your resurrection power. So, God, we submit to whatever you speak to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. So today uh, is James part five. We have been in a series on James. If you've been here any of the last few weeks, you know that um, each week we just take uh, anywhere from eight to ten verses on the book of James and uh, break those down. And so it's been a really fun journey um, as we've been going through that. So the text today specifically is going to be James chapter two, one through verses 13. Um, and so I want to encourage you, if you, haven't, if you haven't listened to those, they kind of all stack on each other, hence we're in chapter 2. So if you want, we don't have online stuff, but we do have podcasts on any podcast platform. You can type in Fixate Phoenix. But James, to me, is a special book. I personally love the book of James. Um, if you kind of, uh, I do a little rehash of why James is important every week, and uh, for sake of redundancy, I'll try to speed through it, but I do think it's rather important why we're talking about the book of James. See, James is the half-brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, however, grows up a skeptic. He's not a follower of Jesus until post-resurrection, which, no offense, I think all of us in here, if your sibling was resurrected from the dead, I would, I would venture to say you'd be more open-minded to whatever they have to say. Um, so he, he grows up a little bit of a skeptic, then upon Jesus' ascension becomes a believer, not only becoming a believer, but helping really uh, build up the church of Jerusalem. If you research the church of Jerusalem, you know it's the first place that, that there's a community of Jesus-following believers in what we would classify as the church on the face of the earth at that time. Now, later on, we know that Christian doesn't show up until later on in Acts when the book of Antioch is established. But in this particular setting, what we see is that James is leading alongside the apostles. And then over time, James takes on a very central leadership and authoritative role as the pastor of this church. Now, what's interesting for a lot of us is we think the more spiritually mature we get with God, the easier the road becomes. Right, A lot of people have this, this uh, infatuation with, and, and many of us, whether we know it or not, have, are maybe in a season where we meet Jesus and then life is just, it goes from roses to cherries to apple blossoms to mango trees. I, I can keep going, but I'm just trying to make things up as I go. Apple pie. Uh, but it just, it, just keeps, it just keeps going. But James's story is like this. Meets Jesus, resurrection, church explodes in Jerusalem. It's going crazy. And then all of a sudden we start to see this happen. Oh, famine in Jerusalem. Oh, persecution breaking out against this church. Oh, martyrdom losing his life for the gospel. Why I think James is important is it doesn't tell a story of a man who stayed consistent and faithful when times were incredibly perfect. 
it tells the story of a man who stayed faithful under the trial and the testing. Under the unmet, maybe, expectations and the wondering of God, will you answer my prayers? Because I'm preaching sermons to starving people in my congregation. I'm preaching sermons to people whose family members or they personally have been persecuted for the gospel. See, a lot of us, what we want to do is we want to believe in a God that is only good. And in, in all honesty, I believe he is all good. It's just whether we'll know the goodness sometimes on this side of eternity or not. Because there are unexplainable things that happen in which in this life we may not have all the answers for. But I guarantee when we get before him, there is a completion to those things. So James is one, once again, trajectory of his life. He is leading, leading, leading. And it's like, oh man, you think when you're a leader, especially Christian America leaders, it just keeps going up, up, up. And then, but James is, is more, not of a downward spiral, but of a leader who knows how to stay faithful, to stay committed, and to stay consistent when it's hard. And so today what we're going to be talking about, I've titled it this, the last thing we want to do that might be the most important thing we ever James part five, the last thing we want to do that might be the most important thing that we ever do. We're going to read, like I said, James chapter two, one through verse 13. 13 verses, so put your Bible helmets on. Here we go. It says this, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. I think it's interesting that he starts like this, like, hey, don't, form, don't have favorite people. Now, he goes on to break this down, but I also believe in this day and age it's important to, to, to point out that this is not just like a blanket statement, but it really is. Like clickiness, only really wanting to talk to certain people, prioritizing relationships with other people who we think we may be able to get something from. These are all things that fall under this narrative. But let's continue to read because he starts to take a hyper-focused lens on this. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes like Noah, and there also comes in a, no laughs, it's okay, there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. You know, footstool in this passage, the only other times it's found is when is actually in the Bible as it says that he'll make your enemy sit down at your footstool. So in this passage, it's almost not just a condescending thing, but it's a, they're an enemy against me type of thing. The poor, the marginalized, those that are less than. Let's continue reading. It says this. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? What's happening is he's writing and he's saying, listen, I'm noticing this about my people, that they are prioritizing the people with the gold rings that have the flashy outfits, and they're forgetting about the poor. Let's continue reading. Listen, verse 5, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair, the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I love that because he's instituting a new sin, partiality. Where else is this found in scripture? Hey, you, you seem like you're being par- partial to somebody. It's a sin, right? Many of us would be like, whoa, righteous guy, chill out. But in this instance, what's happening is he's saying, listen, you're looking skin deep. Prioritizing people based off of appearance, based off of who you think is cool, based off of the people you want to be around. And it's interesting because as we start to maybe assess not just our walks, but I would just say our personhood in this Western culture and climate, how many of us can feel this a little bit? A partiality towards people who are polished, professional, or can offer us something in return. Let's continue reading because it keeps going deeper. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Isn't that interesting, the law of liberty? I love that because I think it's kind of like a dichotomy. It's like the law that's free. But isn't that the dichotomy we all enter into, believing that the law that we follow becomes the freedom that we live in? In the last verse. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, there are 13 verses here related to pure motives, favoritism, partiality, and essentially poor and rich. Now, what's wild about this is because many of you guys, if you were not here last week, I want to add some contextual clarity to this matter. There's a really good book that I read. It's massive, so I I doubt very few of us would undertake the the amount of time. I borderline uh, almost quit about halfway through because, you know, my sweet spot for books is three to 400. You start hitting 700, I start tapping out. Um, But there was a book called Dominion by a man by the name of Tom Holland, and essentially he goes and he researches all of the different... um, Kind of human, and I would say almost, this is like a different phrase to use, but it's just lack of a better term. All the different human rights um, revolutions on the face of the planet and how Christianity had a heavy undertaking in instituting that. And one of those in specific uh, kind of I want to talk about today is, and I mentioned it last week, but it was the welfare system. Now, many of us, we're not going to get into the government and blah, blah, blah about welfare. But what I will say is this, is that in this book, Tom Holland writes a chapter about how the early church, the Christian church in Jerusalem that then spread all over the map. Essentially, what happened is, is how it grew so fast is because because they took personal ownership over the poor, the marginalized, the downcast and the downtrodden establishing food lines and bringing in unwanted children and taking people off the street in such an explosive way that literally they were multiplying rapidly to the point that Rome looked at the Christian church and said, okay, hold on. They're growing much faster than any deity we've ever seen in our country. We need to develop our own government welfare system or else they can gather enough people to form an insurrection in our city. Think about that. The mighty Rome is literally afraid of how many poor people 
how many sick people are being saved and transformed, that they literally have to, okay, what are we going to do? You can trace government welfare from the first start in Rome down on through the ages because of what Christians carried. You know what's even more wild about that is that Christianity, the rise of it, makes no sense to anybody who understands power. What do I mean by that? They had no weapons, they had no political power, and they had no wealth. And they go from 12 to millions within a period of 300 years. No power, no wealth, no weapons. No power, no wealth, no weapons. What did they have? A heart that just said anyone, anywhere, anytime. And I want to encourage you because this sermon for a lot of us is going to be a little bit different Uh, than what I've talked about in the past. And I think it's important for us to set the table as to why this might be different. Because the, the why of this passage being so important is because these 13 verses were not just, hey, don't show favoritism and partiality. Don't, ju- don't make sure that you don't just pick the guy with the gold ring and the fancy clothes. No, these passages are so important because they weren't just suggestions. They were the playbook of growth to the early church. This passage was the key to how the early church expanded and remade the modern belief system and religion today. Elitism and click of superiority were looked at disdainfully. Those in need were the object of the gospel, not an obstacle to it. What am I saying? See, a lot of us, we don't even realize that clickiness and favoritism, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have good friends, but I, w- I shouldn't. Say, what I should say is I hope that just because you have good friends doesn't mean that you build gates around who you are. You know, today I want to talk about the last thing we want to do and the most important thing we may ever do, loving the less than, the have-not, the poor, the broken, the sick, and the downcast, or should I just say, our neighbors, and how we must rid ourselves of favoritism, preferential treatment, and the pursuit of a spot around the campfire of acceptance and comfortability. And know that it's those who we make space for in our lives that can give nothing for in return that truly show the level of love we have for the one we profess to serve. Today I want to talk about three important lessons that we can only live or we can only learn from what we have labeled as less than. Three important lessons that you can only learn from those you have labeled as less than. You know, I want to say this too. Um, I think that our church strategically in this location, uh, God had a reason for. Many times when I tell people where our church is, they immediately go, oh, 7th Avenue in Van Buren. I mean, just this morning, we unlocked the gates and somebody had hopped the fence and was sleeping on our front steps here. You know, our first gathering ever in this building, I'm unlocking the door, and as I'm unlocking the door, I'm watching some homeless people who had kicked in a window walking in our room that were just had a camp right here. Now, for a lot of people, though, I feel like over time there would be a, okay, well, did you get, did you call the authorities? Did you get upset? Did you, you know? And it's funny because as I was writing this sermon, it was becoming more and more evident why I felt like the Lord had placed us here. 
in a place of proximity to those who are in extreme need, in a place where we come head on with people who are of way different situations than us, of a place where, should I just say it like this, a church is needed. That instead of looking at, okay, what is the socioeconomic class of all the people around us? What is the maximum amount of money that can come in if we can attract the community? What is, how, do we, how do we make sure that we get everybody on Team Fixate? No, how do we love those who can't give anything in return? And so today, for each one of these points, I'm going to share a specific story. But I want to say this to you. When you give to Fixate here, you give to living out this passage. Because this passage is why we are here. When we wanted to plant in downtown, it is because we felt like there was a grittiness and a realness here. That if you, if you don't live it down here and you're hypocritical, you catch that label quick, you ain't going to make it. If you want to impact this community, our neighbors better be talking good about us. Those who are on our streets better know that we care about them. See, that is the church that we long to build. And I'll say this, that's sometimes the thing that the church has forgotten about, and I repent of that. Looking at the gold rings and the flashy outfits instead of the poor and the broken and those in need. And I'll say this, that as long as we're here, which we don't have anywhere else to go, and we felt called to downtown, when we're here, this, is, this isn't just a passage I hope you live out. This is a passage that I hope gets inside of you and influences the person that you are every day. So let's get into a couple things. Three important lessons we can only learn from what we have labeled as less than. The first one, the extent of your love to the least shows the depths of who you follow the most. The test of who you are when no one is looking usually comes down to your love for those who can give you nothing in return. The God we serve usually uses the ones we don't think we can learn from to teach us the most. A saint with dirty hands is one whose heart is full. I remember when I first moved here, we were trying to buy a house. and The house we live in right now... That house uh, is right by a Target, which is my wife's favorite thing to do four times a week. But, hashtag every woman in here, Target, forever, Uh, seasonal, (laughs) Target seasonal, I don't know, is there even a seasonal? Yes, there's definitely a seasonal. Um, But I remember we walked through, that girls are like, I'm attacked, oh my gosh, (laughs) but I remember I walked through the showing of the house we live in currently. And I remember thinking, and what's funny is this, my wife was sick that day. I walked her through on FaceTime and she was like, man, I hope we get this house. I'm praying right now. The best part is, my mom's gonna hate that I say this, but I called her and she's like, 25 offers on a house? You're definitely not getting it. (laughs) But we got that house, hallelujah, God. Uh, Thank you, bring it down, Lord. Uh, But uh, I remember... We walk through the house, we're turning in our offer, and I remember I run to Target to pick up some stuff for my wife. As I'm walking into Target, there's a homeless man outside begging, but it's not a homeless man. I look at this guy, and he's probably 16. And I look at him, and I immediately, my heart goes out, because I'm like, I'm pretty, if, if, you know, we run into homeless here very often during the week, but very rarely that young. And I remember looking at him, and I just go up to him, I said, hey man, like, what do you need today? And he's just like, oh, I just need some food and 
And I looked at him, I said, okay, so we go in the store and I'm buying him some food. And I remember we're walking around. This was the first time that my notion of those in need had been directly, like, challenged. And I remember I'm walking him around and I'm like, okay, what do you need today? And he looks at me and he goes, well, I want some food. If I could get some, some things to be able to clean myself up. And I said, where do you usually stay? And he goes, well, my, my mom has been addicted to drugs and she... She prostitutes herself to be able to take on that addiction. And so I've just chose the streets over living with her. And I said, well, have you been able? He said, I had to drop out and I've been trying to find work. And I said, well, how's that been going? He goes, well, I can't get hired because I don't have access to clean showers and clean clothes. And so trying to get a job, I, I, can, I, I can't even show up to interviews looking presentable, and most of the time I'm immediately labeled as dirty and somebody who they don't want apart. And I remember hearing that story and thinking about all the people that I drove by and go, oh man, they're just, they're lazy. Oh man, they're just, I can't believe that they're like that. I can't believe that they're begging. I can't, and I'll never forget this. I ended up buying that guy a bunch of stuff, praying for him that day. And I said, just so you know, I, I, if I close on this house, my wife's going to be here a lot. <laughs> but I said, I'm going to be looking for you because I want to talk to you about opportunity. And what's funny is I remember driving away that day. And we were very much in an uncertain if we were going to get that house. And I felt like I, pray, I prayed this prayer. I'll never forget. I was driving down the road. I said, God... If the only reason you wanted me to see that house is for me to see and meet this guy and hear his story, then that's good enough. That I know you needed me to hear that because at that time we'd only lived here for a few months. You needed me to hear that to be the pastor you wanted me to be. And from that place, we got that house. But I was thinking about this week. I, I was thinking about it and I literally, I didn't get an answer for it, but I was like, God, if I wouldn't have stopped for that guy, taken the time with him, bought him and provided for his needs, would you have blessed me with that house? And I was thinking about it. I was like, man, like, because the revelation was so deep. And a lot of us, what we want is we want blessing with no revelation. And I pray that we never get to the point where all we cry out for is blessing, but not revelation that changes our humanity. You know, in Proverbs, I was, I'm uh, studying Proverbs right now. It says this, he who despises his neighbor's sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. The next point I have for you, number two. There is no such thing as a personal relationship with Christ that does not require personal care for our neighbor's. The poor have just as much a right to the riches of faith as us. Partiality on appearance and superiority must be repented of. If you make your decisions of those who are allowed access to your time and resource by outward appearance, you will atrophy the spiritual muscles needed for the marathon of following Jesus. The neighbor you're called to love is the people God places in your direct path every day. Once again, this... this really spoke to me as James is talking and and almost like he's resetting a broken bone. If you notice how how he wrote in James 2, he's essentially saying, hey guys, like you need to stop doing this because this is not how our church was started. To, to prioritize and have favoritism and choose people on appearance. That is not who we are and that has never been the intended purpose of the gospel. Now, the reason I say that is because 
you know, I remember we opened our church here and uh, we opened our church here. I'll never forget this. And this is a disclaimer, okay? I don't want to get like people spiritually weirded out, but we are a spiritually weird church, so you'll be fine. Um, but I remember one week Jason was here. Uh, I don't think, Liz, I think you were singing. Actually, Alan, I know you were on. Uh, but at this time, we'd only been open a few weeks. And what was happening is Justin would open our doors. And when it's cool, when it's cold here in the winter, when we open our doors, typically we'll have uh, a lot of street people who will come in and, and stay just to warm themselves up and get a cup of coffee. And we kind of have these little care bags that we give people, whoever comes in, uh, and make space for them in our services, whatever that looks like. But this week, I remember Justin, we kind of have this unspoken, spoken like, hey, like somebody's here, but they might be out of their mind. And believe it or not, like I'm not gonna play. I'm gonna play devil's advocate here because I will say we we encounter a lot of street people here, and we do encounter a fair share that don't know what planet they're on. But in this particular instance, I remember we had we had couches in the back, and Justin looks at me. He goes, "Hey, just so you know, like sound checks going on. There's a lady in the back. She's sitting, but she's a little bit." And I'm like, "Okay, I'll keep an eye on her, but I know she's probably warming up and checked in on her. You need anything? Oh, I'm just you know." But I'll never forget this. I'm talking with Jason right here, and Autumn, which is Liz's daughter, is sitting right there. And the band starts playing, and all of a sudden, all I can hear is screaming. Just screaming right in the back of the room. And I remember looking at Jason, and I'm, I kid you not, this is the first thing that goes through my mind. God, don't you know I have a sermon to preach today? And I remember thinking, I'm like, I repent of that. However, I still have a church to lead, like services in 45 minutes. I'd prefer to not have to go spiritual Rambo on somebody like this is just this is not my preferred Sunday morning, like run through of church. And I remember I come around the corner. I come around the corner and this woman is she's got a scarf over her mouth and is screaming into her scarf, rocking and shaking. And I walk up to her and I just grab her shoulder. And I say, ma'am, can I pray with you? And she just starts throwing her arms. I said, ma'am, can I pray with you? Throwing her arms. Finally, I go, in the name of Jesus. I like, I like grab her shoulder. I'm like, in the name of Jesus, I speak peace to you. And literally goes stiff as a board and falls on the ground back there. And I just start praying for her, praying for her, praying for her, praying for her. Finally, she looks at me and she, she literally, this is the, I'll never forget this. She had, had been pulling out her hair and had just handfuls of hair. And I said, ma'am, I will continue to pray for you as long as you want this morning. But that is your choice. I will continue to pray for you in this side room as long as you want. It is your choice. Would you like me to keep going? And she stands straight up. She looks at me and she goes, I think I'm good for today. Thank you. And just walks out the door. <laughs> I mean, screaming, ripping her hair out, thrashing. But I'm going to tell you, I was like, (laughs) But I'm reminded of that story because so often I feel like in Christian culture and in just the sub-narrative of everything, that's easily, where's my security team? Instead of, well, that's my responsibility. Not Micah as the pastor, but us as people. Our neighbors, the less than, the unfortunate and downcast, 
See, the playbook of church growth here is not just us hoping we'll be cool and trendy and brandy and all the stuff. The playbook of growth here is people come here and they're like, man, that's a real place. Not real as in just the worship or the message, but real in how they carry themselves and how they care for their neighbors. See, that's the renewal we seek, is not becoming the greatest blueprint of how to be a church today, but rather a blueprint of how heaven can touch earth as a church today. My last point for you this morning is this. Man, I'm doing so good on time. I'm so proud of myself. I'm convinced that the level of judgment we feel today as followers of Christ comes from a mercy-dispensing deficiency in our personal walk. If mercy triumphs over judgment, then the invitation is whenever we feel the judgment of man or even the judgment and blame we cast upon ourselves, we look for ways to apply mercy to our fellow man, preferably the downcast and downtrodden. You might be surprised when you give mercy and grace to someone less fortunate what it does for your fortunes and your future. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you practice it, you may find out firsthand. You know, there's only two things I remember about Easter this year. It was our church's first Easter. The first one, that our choir in the third service was going crazy. (laughs) Like, I remember, like, looking up at the choir in the third service, and I felt like the floor was, like, bending. The second thing is this stack of coins. This is 95 cents. You know, on Easter, we'd been uh, open for a little over six months. And in that time, in that six months, we had got it so far exceeded everything that we thought. You know, in six months, we were over 600 people, and it was just insane. And I don't know how me and my wife are still alive today, but we are. And Amanda. Um, but um, there's only two things I remember about that day. The first one was, was that choir in the third service. But the second one was Jericho. Um, Jericho and a couple of the guys who were greeting at the gate. There was a homeless man in a wheelchair rolling down the street. And they looked at him and said, why don't you come in for service today? It's Easter. And at that time, I had ramps, but I hadn't had them put out, so it was funny because all I remember looking out the window in Jericho, rolling this guy up, picking his wheelchair up, bringing him in and setting him in a good spot. That man stayed for the whole service, and afterwards, he rolls himself up with no legs, and you can tell he's a street person. Looks at me, looks at me, he says, I got 95 cents. I got 95 cents. And it's not going to be much for what you guys want to accomplish, but I know you're going to do great things here. You know, how many of us, right, that moment of weightiness, a man with no legs who lives on the street that says, I've got 95 cents. Here you go. Thank you so much for what you've done for me, and I hope that you'll continue to do it for others. See, when I tell, when we talk in our final moments this morning, about mercy dispensing deficiency. What we don't realize is when we give mercy in space to those who aren't used to feeling mercy in space, they may return something to us that makes us realize that, wow, mercy does triumph over judgment. 
And see, a lot of us in this room, that phrase, we think mercy triumphs over judgment, and that's the story of Jesus. It's an incredible story of, of judgment and man's sin and all of these things. But what if I told you today that the judgment you feel can be triumphed by the mercy you dispense? See, as we sit in this room, see, some of us, we can't even remember the last time we sacrificed or expended mercy on somebody else, but man, we feel the judgment. We feel the condemnation. We feel the blame. We feel the shame. And God says, man, if you would dispense, you might find that my mercy can triumph again. And see, when I look at these coins, no matter how, no matter how much I'm against or no matter what I'm believing for for our church or whatever I'm praying for, I remember that moment and no matter what I'm feeling of uncertainty or man, are we going to, or what are you going to do, God, or how are you going to provide or whatever, I remember that. And it's like, man, that mercy was worth every weight that I carry. And I want to say this to you today that that 95 cents has done a lot to me, but I hope it does a lot for you. That those that you create space for, those that you allow into your life, those that you dispense mercy upon, you might find the judgment starts to shrink. You know, James isn't telling his people this passage because he thinks it's something they should just do better. He's telling them this because this is all they ever did at the beginning. And he never wants them to lose sight of where they started. In closing, we're working on something in the spring for righteousness and justice for our neighbors. But I want to encourage you today. Every week we hand out homeless packets, food, water, and pray for our neighbors with no homes and food. And I want to thank you for your support in allowing us to be able to do that and continued support for what the Lord will do for our neighbors in our direct path. Stand to your feet. In closing, um, every week we've been taking time to, with one final worship song, to just recite the Lord's Prayer with each other. So I want to encourage you today. We're going to just take a time of stillness and quiet. I know Tyler's going to throw the words up there on the screen, but, you know, the be still and know that I am God is something we take seriously here. And so let's create space for about 30 seconds to be still and then we'll recite this together and worship one final time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us 